Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta thanking you for joining me today. We have got two hours talking about the things that matter most. Let me start out with where we're going in the second hour of today's program. We are going to be, today being the Feast of St. Luke, we're going to take a look at his Gospel. And in many ways, um, the Gospel of Luke has been... uh, really a source of inspiration for hymns. I mean, we've got the, the great Gloria and the Magnificat come out of the Gospel of Luke. We've got the, uh, well, the Hail Mary prayer is taken from the Gospel of Luke. St. Francis of Assisi began the custom of the Christmas manger, uh, taken largely from the Gospel of Luke. And you get the great painters of Rembrandt and Caravaggio, who produced some of their great works of art right out of the Gospel of Luke. And Luke's Gospel itself is a great work of art. It's carefully laid out, and this is a man who's using all of his literary and narrative skill to give us what turns out to be the longest uh, of the Gospels. So we're going to take time in the second hour of today's program to take a deep dive into the Gospel of Luke. First hour of today's program, though, we go to one of the bombshell moments in the history of Western civilization, it's that period which is commonly called the Reformation, but that's really inaccurate. That's a historian's effort to impose order on what was a very chaotic period. Uh, it has to be referred to as the Reformations, and I'm glad to say my guest, Dr. Carlos Ayer, Yale University, is using the multiple, uh, using the plural now, Reformations, to describe that period. We'll talk about it. But first, today's headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, October 18th. It's the Feast of St. Luke the Evangelist. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. President Biden says it appears a Palestinian terrorist group is responsible for a hospital explosion in Gaza that left hundreds dead. I truly grieve for the families who were killed or wounded by this tragedy. While speaking in Tel Aviv today, Biden said the U.S. unequivocally stands for the protection of all civilian life during conflict. Both the U.S. and Israel say a failed rocket launch by the Islamic Jihad terrorist group hit the hospital in Gaza City. Hamas has disputed those claims and said the explosion was due to an Israeli airstrike. The president was set to meet with leaders of Jordan, Egypt, and the Palestinian Authority while in the Middle East, but the meeting was canceled following the explosion. Meanwhile, thousands of protesters have descended on the U.S. Embassy in Lebanon in reaction to the hospital explosion. On Tuesday, the U.S. State Department warned Americans not to travel to Lebanon, raising the travel advisory for the country to level four. The advisory cited the unpredictable security situation related to rocket, missile, and artillery exchanges between Israel and Hezbollah or other armed militant factions. The House is in recess after Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan came up short for the second time in the vote for House Speaker. 
Jordan needed 217 votes and received only 199 votes, 13 fewer than House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. The House has been without a speaker since Kevin McCarthy was ousted more than two weeks ago. And on this day in rock and roll history in 1957, Paul McCartney made his onstage debut with the Quarrymen in Norris Green, Liverpool, England. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. You know, the Reformation is one of the most misunderstood and challenging periods in uh, Western history. And even the use of the singular Reformation creates distortion. There was not one Reformation. There were multiple Reformations. And uh, they had influenced each other. My guest, though, has produced a wonderful volume, 800 pages, called Reformations, plural. The Early Modern World, 1450 to 1650. And Dr. Carlos Ayer is Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University, where he specializes in the social, intellectual, religious, and cultural history of late medieval and early modern Europe, with a focus on the Protestant and Catholic Reformations. Uh, Also, the history of popular piety, history of the supernatural, the history of death. He uh, is the author of the book that I referred to earlier, called Reformations, the Early Modern World. And uh, most recently, They Flew, A History of the Impossible. He also uh, authored Waiting for Snow in Havana, which won the National Book Award in 2003, and tells the story of his childhood in Cuba before he settled in the United States. Uh, Dr. Ayer, it's good to have you with me. Thanks. Well, thanks for the invitation. Very glad to be here with you. Uh, You know, these... I've always wondered, having read a little bit in the 16th century, why did we end up calling it the Reformation, when in fact, you know, historians have always known there were multiple movements uh, that made it up. Why, why do they call it the Reformation? You know, we have the well, medieval it, period, it, the it, Renaissance, the Reformation, it's convenient, right. but... Yeah, uh, well, it's it's basically it, it started out as a a, a Protestant uh, term. Protestant historiography claimed the term uh, solely for the the Protestant break from the Catholic Church. Even though you know Catholics uh, throughout the Middle Ages have been constantly reforming, and in the, right. the Latin term reformatio mm-hmm. or renovatio, you know, renovation. Uh, was commonly used all the time. Religious orders were always renovating and reforming themselves, and the Church as a whole was, too. But in the Reformation, it's it's the, the writing, you know, as they say, the, the winners write history. <laughs> so in those areas that became monolithically Protestant, uh, and there were many, a whole chunk of Northern Europe became monolithically Protestant, uh, the, their historians uh, claimed the term Reformation. Uh, I think it's kind of funny, like humorous, uh, there's a humorous quality to it, that uh, at this very same period, beginning in the 16th century, Catholic historians always referred to Protestantism, of course, as a heresy, but more than that, they used the term revolt. Yeah. You know, it was a revolt. And um, lo and behold, 
Uh, I finished college exactly 50 years ago, 1973, at Loyola, Chicago. Mm -hmm. And the the Reformation course, which was taught by a a Jesuit professor I love dearly, uh, who passed away just a few years ago, Robert Byerly, uh, the course had, had this term, the Catholic Reformation and the Protestant Revolt. (laughs) Uh, and uh professor byerly father byerly went on to write a wonderful book about the catholic reformation uh also uh called uh, the title is the refashioning of catholicism pretty good you point out your book says uh, early modern world 1450 to 1650 so you're not starting in 1517 uh the luther date uh, when he uh, no he, uh, no names I, his theses it, you know, it, is this is this becoming uh, common now to start oh, talking? Yeah. Okay, definitely, definitely. Actually, the the what has happened in the last fifty years, but more more specifically in the last twenty five, is that the writing of the history of this period is no longer dominated by confessional historians. That is historians who are writing to prove that their church did the correct thing. Right, right. It's, it's fallen It's fallen out of use completely to um, write any kind of even vaguely polemical history of any of the reformations. And uh, sadly, uh, also in these past 25 years, but especially in the last 15 the study of reformations, plural, is slowly dying. Really? And vanishing, yes. Is that because people don't believe in the potency of religious ideas? That's part of it. You know, at public universities, certainly. You know, any 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 course uh, on Christianity is, is going to rub many people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, at... Uh, Christian universities, Christian colleges, Protestant, and Catholic, the period itself is moving out of focus. Hmm. Uh, So that, uh, you know, sadly, I, last year, uh, there were only, in all of North America, about five job openings for people with PhDs in this period. Wow. And none of them, none of those five, were advertised as Reformation or Reformation. They were advertised as, you know, early modern. Early modern, yeah. And most of them actually required that the person who uh, who could apply for this job and get it had to do more than Europe. They had to do uh, uh, transatlantic history Mm. or global history. Wow. In addition to... Because, you know, Europe is evil, Christianity is evil, and we can't focus on that. And seminaries, too, have given up on teaching uh, Reformation. uh, Your book makes the point, though, that you can't understand our world today if you don't understand these events. Of course, yes. Absolutely. Um, And, uh, you know, I I tried hard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, to to make that clear, 
in every chapter of the book to try to tie it to, you know, what, what, what's the significance of all this stuff for us now? But in many ways, we are uh, still living with this. Let me stop that sentence and start a completely okay, different go one. Go to <laughs> Amnesia is one of the worst things that could happen to any person to lose their memory. Right. Uh, and now that's the devastating thing for individuals and families who have to deal with uh, family members who develop Alzheimer's. What happens is they no longer know who they are. They no longer know who anybody else is. Yeah. And that's why the study of history is so important. But the fact that the religious unity of the Western Christian world was shattered in the 16th century yeah. is still affecting us. Yeah. Uh, it, and it, it will continue to affect us for some time to come, even though church memberships are shrinking. And even though there's one positive development, which in the Catholic world began with the Second Vatican Council, ecumenism. Yeah, yes. You know, that um, we're, we're no longer uh, killing each other yeah. <laughs> or, right. or even shouting insults at each other, but, you know, we, we cooperate and try to show love toward yeah. each other despite our difference. Affirm our common baptism. Um, you know, uh, no, I think that's uh, wonderful, and I, I think for Catholics in particular, uh, this is part of what it means to be a faithful Catholic, is to work, uh, to recover yeah. as much common ground as we can. And absolutely, uh, you know, within the Catholic fold, every Catholic, at one point, some point, usually early in life, becomes aware of the fact that within the Catholic fold, there are a variety of <laughs> that's <opinions>. true <laughs> that's true <laughs> very true L- let me ask you you start back in 1450 in you know the, the time of the printing press uh, yes but i wanted to ask you about, about the state uh, of the church at that time i mean the popular impression is that the Catholic Church on the eve of the Reformation was wickedly corrupt, an object of loathing. Uh, But I'm wondering, was late medieval Christianity decadent or lacking in religious participation? Uh, Were there no devotional sensibilities? And did that differ between clergy and laity? Well, um, there are differences of opinion among scholars because it depends on what you're looking at. Okay. Uh, according to some indices, such as confraternity memberships, mm-hmm. confraternities were enormously significant in medieval Europe. We have lost that in, in the Catholic tradition. Uh, but uh, me- uh, membership in confraternities and the creation of confraternities, these are lay associations devoted to various things from purely uh, devotional uh Preoccupations such as uh, celebrating Corpus Christi, mm-hmm. or uh, establishing orphanages and hospitals, yeah, charitable works, and so on. Membership in confraternities skyrockets in the late 15th century. Wow! And so do the number of confraternities, and more than that, um, the amount of money 
being funneled into church decorations also skyrocket. Mm. Interesting. And it's because, you know, around 1400, the European society starts to become ever more prosperous. Mm-hmm. And, and it's one of the things that, you know, kicks in the beginning of what we now call the modern world and the Renaissance, the rebirth of, you know, learning and interest in classical culture. You need money for these things. Right, right. Uh, your, your, your culture or society needs to have a certain amount of wealth uh, for education to spread and for literacy to spread. But the fact is, uh, there are many indications that there were not only more confraternities and more gifts to churches, but when the printing press is invented in 1450, what kind of books are being published? Well, all kinds of books, but the vast majority of them are devotional texts. Interesting. Uh, Doctor, hold it there. We've got to take a break. I want to come back and sure. uh, continue to unpack that question because I think it's important that people get a feel for what uh, condition of the church was uh, at that time. My guest, Dr. Carlos Ayer, is the author of Reformations, the Early Modern World, 1450 to 1650. It's an outstanding book and a great read. Resetting your password, unsubscribing from emails, printing anything. Why are simple things sometimes so complicated? Thankfully, with an auto owner's insurance independent agent, getting the right coverage for your business doesn't have to be one of them. So you can get back to more important things, like learning how that printer works. That's simple human sense. Call Choice Insurance Agency at 734-641-4200. Do you have an unrelated twin, a doppelganger, walking around somewhere? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. Scripture points to many who may have been actual twins. Doubting Thomas, one of the twelve apostles, may have been a twin. His surname is Didymus, which means double or twofold. Is it possible for each of us to have a twin of sorts, an unrelated person who so closely resembles us that they pass for a twin? Research cited by Dr. Peter Atia indicates that 99.9% of the human genome is identical across all humans. So it is possible that at least one of the billions on Earth could have a slight bit more genetic material that makes them look like me or you. But it isn't just looks. Even certain behaviors studied tend to be more similar in lookalikes. The next time someone says you look like George Clooney, research says it's possible. For more on this, look for the Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. What does the Eighth Commandment demand of us? The Catholic Catechism says this commandment forbids misrepresenting the truth in our relations with others. This derives from the vocation of holy people to bear witness to their God who is truth and who wills the truth. Offenses against the truth, either by word or deed, are fundamental infidelities to God and thus undermine the foundation of our covenant with him. The Old Testament tells us God is the source of all truth. His word is truth, as is his law. Jesus Christ is the whole of God's truth made manifest. To follow Christ is to live in the spirit of truth, says the Catechism. Jesus taught his disciples the unequivocal nature of truth when he instructed them, let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
Anything more is from the evil one. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. He is only one of four popes honored as the great. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Leo I was pope at a time when Roman civilization was being overrun by barbarian armies. He stood as a light in the darkness and even saved the city of Rome from destruction by Attila and the Huns. Leo died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. You and your spouse are invited to cruise with Royal Caribbean this January, along with Father Michael Schmidt, Archbishop Nauman, Al, Teresa, Dr. Ray, and many others. Get away with your spouse on a fun, relaxing, and rejuvenating cruise with inspiring speakers, daily mass, and endless memorable experiences. Father Michael Schmidt's comments, you'll encounter an amazing community of couples and speakers, and most importantly, you'll encounter Christ. More details at AveMariaRadio.net. Just click the travel link. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Carlos Ayer, author of Reformations, the Early Modern World, 1450 to 1650. We're taking a look at that incredibly uh, chaotic but creative period in our Western history. And before the break, we're talking about the state of the Church on the eve of the Reformation. I asked, was late medieval Christianity decadent or lacking in religious participation or devotional sensibilities? And, well, if you take a look at confraternities, you take a look at money being spent on refurbishing uh, churches, uh, people were, were into it. What was, the, what was the complaint about the church at the time then? Well, there, there was a lot of corruption, you know, almost everywhere one looked. Okay. One could find instances of things not being done properly, um, and of individuals uh, taking advantage of the the looseness of authority, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about um, regular clergy, you know, members of religious orders, or secular clergy, parish clergy. Mm-hmm. There, there were there were a lot of rules that were not being observed. Okay, for instance, um, priests. Uh, uh, especially uh, parish priests who did not uh, fulfill their vow of celibacy. Okay. Fairly common. As a matter of fact, in some dioceses, the bishops uh, had a special tax. They would tax 
their clergy for uh, for each child they had. Oh, mercy. And it was, a, in some places, a, a very good source of income for the bishops. <laughs> so they did nothing to stop it. And there were many privileged families and privileged individuals who held church positions and and didn't actually have much of a vocation, if any at all. And the clergy who were the hardest to reform were uh, cathedral canons. That is, the the clergy in, in the cathedrals, the bishops' clergy, because they all came from the most powerful families, and boy, they resisted it. Okay. And reforming was dangerous. We have, as part of part of the history of the Catholic Reformation, is bishops who tried to reform their clergy, and their clergy tried to kill them. Yeah, yeah. Saint Charles Borromeo was shot in the back by a priest. Of uh, uh, forget what order he belonged to, but he, you know, he was trying to reform them, and this priest shot him in the back. Yeah, but wow. his liturgical vestments were so thick. And, and, you know, this is early on. The, the gun was not powerful enough. The bullet bounced off his back, but it left a terrible bruise on him. <laughs> Mercy. And some clergy tried to poison their bishops with the communion wine. This, this is the situation. Yeah. I mean, and there were a lot of complaints about corruption. But there were also many people trying to fix things. Well... Then the earlier Catholic attempts at reform were stifled because of these, I guess, these uh, people who were embedded in authoritative positions. Yeah. Why did Luther's uh, complaint gain momentum? Well, it it gained momentum uh, for several reasons, but I think the main reason it gained momentum was that um, a lot of rules that the Catholic Church had, uh, for instance, fasting, mm-hmm. um, having to go to confession, confess one's sins, uh, and uh, a number of others, uh, celibacy for priests and so on. All of these were done away with. But that was not Luther's principal intention when he began to complain in 1517, his initial complaint was purely theological. Yeah. It had yeah. to do with how one is saved. The, the, the subject in, in theology, Christian theology known as soteriology, mm-hmm. or how one is saved. Luther's initial complaints were about a technical point, indulgency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Part of that complaint was about the money that people were spending for their dead relatives in purgatory. Uh, Luther uh, uh, very quickly ends up, as he's pushed against the wall, uh, denies the existence of purgatory. So you see a continual emptying of... So he... He denies the value of indulgences. He ends up denying the value of purgatory, and eventually works its way up, right, to the papacy. Oh yeah, to everything. And and you know, the the, the his his main complaint about the, the soteriology of the late medieval Catholic Church was that it was all about counting your actions. Yeah, 
counting your sins, counting your good charitable works, and turning God into an, uh, uh, some some kind of uh, calculating machine mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. weighed your good things versus your bad things. So he said, no, that's not what it's about. It's saved by faith alone. But yeah. that that opened up the, 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 a can of worms. And it went from one point to another, and uh, he begins his protest in 1517, and by 15. 15- 19, when he is declared a heretic uh, by the Pope, he's already calling the Pope the Antichrist. Wow. Was he an apocalyptic thinker? I mean, did he, did he see he, the he end? Thought, yes. He thought, he thought that the reason that uh, he had come along, because he, he was constantly asked by, by Catholic uh, theologians and even by the Emperor himself, Emperor Charles V, who are you? To come along after fifteen hundred years and say that you know everything's been wrong, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and uh, Luther's position was that the end was near. Okay, and, and he was here as as a prophet. He viewed himself as a prophetic figure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thought that the end was near. He did not put a date on it as some others would around him. Yeah, but uh, he was convinced that the end was near, and now the church was being restored. But politics had a lot to do with it, too. Yeah. Because uh, the main reason that he survived after he was excommunicated, and after Emperor Charles V and the German parliament pronounced him an outlaw, which means anyone could grab him and kill him with impunity, was that his local prince protected him. And uh, his followers began to gain the protection of princes, and in Germany and in Switzerland, uh, but this is primarily in German-speaking areas, uh, in the cities, the cities were self-governing, and the burghers, well, let's call them the middle class and the upper middle class, mm-hmm. they began, uh, who had city councils and so on, began to vote themselves Reformed, yeah, for Protestant, mm. and they managed to break away. How, and how, I'm just wondering, though, how, how much of this was religiously motivated? How much of it was politically motivated or commercially motivated? I mean, I, I know that's one of those large and lumpy questions you can speculate yeah, on, but I, yeah. can we untangle uh, those motives? It's, no, they cannot be untangled. Okay. It, it, it all it, it all works together. And um, you cannot separate the politics from the theology, and you cannot separate um, individuals into very neat categories. Yeah. Oh, the, the, these people were political. These people were more devotional. No, mm. as, as I have often said, you know, when when Protestants destroyed images, why did they do it? What was going on? And I, I, I have long argued that there were as many different reasons uh, behind people smashing images as there were number of people smashing images. Everyone could have their own reason. If I remember right, you wrote a whole book on this, didn't you? Wars on yeah, Idols? My, yeah, my first book. War yeah, yeah, I remember seeing that. Uh, and um, the same applies to every aspect of religious change uh, at any time. 
but especially at this time, okay. because it happened so fast, is that there were multiple reasons for people breaking with the Catholic Church. And then there are some things that make you scratch your head, such as, for instance, uh, this one also is, is the one that's made me scratch my head most intensely. Okay. Um, is that uh, artisans were organized into guilds, uh, sort of the equivalent of our modern labor unions. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the, in the city, uh, the guilds would align in, in along different lines. So, for instance, in one Swiss city, in Basel, the Guild of Butchers was 100% Catholic. The printers, 100% Protestant. <laughs> the other guilds, in between. <laughs> and then uh, something funny happened, for instance, in the city of Lyon in France, where the Printers Guild became Protestant, and they actually led the way to uh, Lyon. Um, not not the whole city, but a substantial portion of Lyon becomes Protestant. But then they they find out that um, their new Protestant church will not allow them to strike <laughs> <laughs> the the apprentices. Are not allowed to strike because that's unchristian. So. They they reconvert to Catholicism. <laughs> so how do you separate that? Yeah. How do you separate these things? Right. Uh, right. It's impossible. Um, you talk about uh, John Calvin and talk about Calvinism. You make a point in the book that um, Calvinism redefines the boundaries uh, between the human and the divine, the, the natural, the supernatural. How... Was that more obvious in the Reformed Calvinist tradition than it was in, say, the Lutheran tradition? Oh, yes, much more so. Luther was not interested in um, metaphysics. He was not interested in in, in figuring out how the spiritual relates to the material. That was not his concern. But that is the central concern of the Reformed Protestant tradition, at least initially. Right? and um, it makes them very different, Lutheran okay. and Reform. Well, we've got to take a break here. We'll come back and pick it up uh, from that distinction. Okay. My guest is uh, Dr. Carlos Ayer. Uh, he is uh, professor of history and religious studies at Yale and the author of an outstanding book, Reformations. Yes, plural, finally. Reformations, the early modern world, 1450 to 1650. your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Koharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. 
It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Dr. Ray Garendi. If I discipline consistently, I'd be disciplining constantly. If I were consistent in my discipline, that would mean I would discipline more, and I'd be disciplining him often. The exact opposite is the case. More consistent discipline leads to less constant discipline. Why? Because you're predictable. The child knows if he does A, you'll do B. That is why when you are predictable in your authority, you will actually have to use that authority less. Consistent discipline leads to less constant discipline. The more you act when you need to act, the less you will have to act in the future with similar misbehavior. Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo. You know, maybe we need to ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus? Maybe another way to ask that would be, how familiar are you with the Gospels? When I was living in D.C., I was on the plane, taking a late flight home, sitting next to a young girl. She was probably 16, 17. I had my collar on, and we got talking, and she said, um, somehow in the course of the conversation, she acknowledged that she was running away from home and was in the midst of uh, an awful lot of difficulties that were going on. Her story seemed to be remarkably akin to the story of the prodigal son, which we just heard this past Sunday at Mass, huh? And so I started to speak a little bit about that with her. And I said, you sound a little bit like the younger son in the story of the prodigal son. And she looked at me like I was from Mars. And I said, are you not familiar with the story of the prodigal son? And she says, no, never heard it. And I just looked at her and I says, oh my goodness, are you in for a wonderful evening? Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Carlos Ayer, author of Reformations, the Early Modern World, 1450 to 1650, uh, talking at the close of the last segment about Calvinism and uh, its legacy as uh, kind of a redefining of the um, relationship between the natural and the supernatural. Uh, you, the iconoclastic crusade, they're getting rid of images, actually is a revolt against the whole medieval worldview. And they're emptying 
the world of much of its uh, supernatural sense. Um, some people call it the disenchantment of the world. Is that what? Yeah. Is that their intention? Well, yes, very much so. Okay. Um, they they thought that you know religion, the, the reformed tradition, um, to which Calvin belonged, and and he became uh, its most influential theologian. Uh, for them, yes, uh, religion that focused on physical points of contact with the spiritual or natural points of contact mm-hmm. with the supernatural, that was totally wrong. That was idolatry. Hmm. And, and therefore, it had to be uh, removed wherever possible. Because um, unlike most uh, throughout most of its history, Catholicism, from the first century to the 16th, and to this very day, it is a, a religion that considers uh, it possible right. for the physical, natural world to interact with the spiritual, supernatural world. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That there are so many points of contact, and especially when it comes to um, ritual, yeah, a sacrament, the sacraments, yeah, um, it, uh, material points of contact. It actually, you know, baptism uses water, uh, confirmation uses oil, uh, the the Eucharist, and the, the extreme unction, especially those four. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Protestants retained baptism and the Eucharist, and got rid of the other sacraments because they couldn't find them mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And those two sacraments they retained had still physical points of contact with the divine. Some, but they they interpreted uh, the water and the bread and wine as symbolic. Yeah, yeah. there was nothing divine or supernatural yeah. there. And especially when it came to the Eucharist, the communion. Uh, yes, they, they spoke of communion. It was a purely spiritual communion. The bread and the wine themselves were, were symbols. They were not, they did not have, Christ was not present. Yeah. yeah. And this was a major disagreement between the Reformed Protestants and the Lutherans. Okay. Lutherans the, still Lutherans retained a real presence. They, yes. They, 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 but they said, you can't explain it. <laughs> yeah. You can't even try to explain it. But, you know, Christ is there, really. Yeah. Physically, uh, so there there are shades. It's a spectrum of of belief. Uh, at, at the most radical spectrum of the Protestant Reformation, you have individuals who not only think the sacraments are unnecessary, but the Church itself is unnecessary. Mm. And that's at the most radical fringe. But yeah. It is a spectrum. Uh, so, uh, but. Another thing that the Protestant Reformation does, and this applies to Lutherans uh, as well as all, all others, is the belief in the cessation of miracles. Right? So miracles are limited to the Bible, the apostolic right. period? The apostolic period. As soon as the last apostle died and everybody agreed that was John, that was it. Yeah. No more miracles. So, of course, the New Testament is full of miracles. Right. For heaven's sakes, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, Peter's shadow cures sick people. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and they said, yeah, of course that was necessary 
to make people believe that the that you know Jesus was the Savior and the apostles were were his disciples, but they had this power. But after that, no, no, it, it stopped happening. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's a very different worldview. I I call it a desacralization yeah. of the world, not not disenchantment because enchantment has to do with magic. Okay, and actually uh, that was a, a pejorative term that Protestants in the 16th century used about Catholic ritual hmm. was that it was all magic. Gotcha. That it uh, hocus pocus. Actually, the, there's debate about this, but some etymologies. Uh, trace the term hocus-pocus to the consecration of the Eucharist in Latin. <laughs> hocus corpus meum. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, uh, Would any of the magisterial reformers have counted their reformations a success? Yes, very much so. Although, what, by what measure, you know, of course they had succeeded. They had broken away from the in Luther's term, the Church of the Antichrist, mm-hmm. and uh, actually all Protestants saw the Catholic Church as deeply embedded in the demonic. Yeah. It was evil. So just the mere fact that they had broken away and established a church uh, that was more focused on the Bible and didn't have all this physical stuff, yeah, that was that was a triumph. Did, did they recognize but, any irony in that? their efforts to purify and renew the Church had succeeded in splintering it. Oh, that was always a sore point. But they were not, you know, this was all happening so fast. Mm-hmm. And especially for the first generation, they, they, they didn't have time or the peace of mind to focus on, on these things. And then as, as the second and third generation come along, and, you know, they're, they're still uh, fracturing within each of the established Protestant churches, um, they begin to reflect on it. But there's no one, to my mind, I have yet to find any uh, theologian in, in the Protestant family from the 16th or 17th century who... Uh, has a cogent explanation or, or program for fixing this problem. Mm. Okay. I am right, you are wrong. Yeah. Basically. Were there and, any and attempts? Fact, were, were there any attempts in the first generation to, like the Marburg Colloquy, to try to find unity among Protestants? Numerous occasions okay. where people came together to discuss. Their differences of opinion, but none of them worked. Yeah, and and the last uh, last of these attempts was in 1561 in Poissy, in France, and um, it was uh, it just didn't work. And after that, they just simply stopped trying. Yeah, to, yeah. to reach some. And, and actually, at the Marburg Colloquy, which you mentioned, was very early, 1529. Um, they agreed on 13 points, the Lutherans and the Reformed, but they could not agree on the Eucharist. Uh, the, uh, the wars of religion, that the Thirty Years' War, is how responsible is that for the secularization of Europe? Well, the, the war itself is a symptom of larger problems 
that and situations that lead to secularization because the the 30 years war is, is actually comes in kind of late there have been many other religious wars before 1618 mm-hmm. france from 1562 to 1598 it, 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 it's a it's an unparalleled bloodbath of french people killing each other over religion, yeah. Protestants and Calvinists. I mean, pro- Protestants and Catholics uh, killing each other. Uh, and and the problem doesn't go away in 1598 when, when a peace is, is reached. Uh, as the Thirty Years' War, which begins in 1618, uh, begins uh, over religious issues, and it begins uh, in Prague, in you know present day Czechia, um, where you still had these medieval heretics, Hussites. To the Hussites, yeah, had become, of John Huss. had become they they were on the Protestant side, but it begins there. But by the end of the war in 1648, it is not really by the end by 30 years of constant fighting and 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 killing it, it it well you could still call it a religious war but it has lost its religious flavor yeah why because by 1648 actually all of this uh, my theory is that um well my theory is basically by 1648 all of this disagreeing and especially all the killing has forced the people to tolerate each other. Yeah. yeah. And uh, business is business. In places, especially where Catholics and Protestants are living in close proximity to each other, you're a business person. Are, are you not going to sell your goods to Protestants? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so on and so forth. Um, and, and the place where... The, there were many places where toleration actually was practiced. But the one place where it was most intensely practiced, the first place where it was most intensely practiced was the Netherlands, where the religious situation was very fluid. Uh, It's a small republic, and it's fighting against uh, Spain because the Spanish crown claimed it. So... The Netherlands is very much part of the Thirty Years' War. Mm. Actually, the re- rebellion against Spain is not finally confirmed uh, as successful till 1648. But by that time, what do you have in the Netherlands? Well, you have you have areas, cities uh, such as Amsterdam, where uh, Catholics can't attend mass; they just can't have churches. <laughs> mm. They can turn a house into a church and go in the back door. But it can't look like a church. Wow! But they can go. They can go to mass, hmm. and Jews can have their synagogues. The same yeah. thing. Uh, and by 1648, you have out and out skepticism, and out and out atheism among the intelligentsia. Yeah. But also among common people too. Okay. So this. Is- yeah. So this, this war of uh, war of religious ideas leads then to unbelief. It 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 does. 
Um, And and actually, uh, there are also practical considerations, which is uh, how can you just conduct life on a day-to-day basis with with all this mayhem? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I I don't want to make any comparisons to present-day Ukraine and what's happening there. But the horrors of these religious wars were, were comparable in a different scale back then. Mm-hmm. There were areas of Germany that, during the Thirty Years' War, lost over 50% of the population. Wow. wow. Either to, you know, actual death or having to relocate. <laughs> uh, the refugee problem is not a new thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, two of my doctoral students have written their dissertations on, uh, you know, Protestant refugees in different cities. Well, Dr. Ayer, let me thank you again for the work into the book. I love the book. I've been reading it and will continue to read it. Uh, and um, I hope we can talk well, again you. in the future. Oh, sure. Anytime. All Anytime. right. Anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for all the great questions, too. Dr. Carlos Ayer is author of Reformations. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. People have this false notion that after the Supreme Court came out with, of course, Roe v. Wade and gave us abortion on demand through nine months of pregnancy, that all of a sudden, all of these regulations were put into place. When all of these independent abortion facilities popped up all over the country, when Planned Parenthood started opening its doors and doing abortions legally after 1973, that it was always so safe and wonderful. And they believe this because they don't see these stories about the botched abortions, the women who have lost their lives, the women who have been violated because their information has been tossed out in the street with the garbage and the medical waste, not to mention the fact that the regulations that are on the books are not even enforced and rarely are these facilities inspected, and yet people think that they're so safe. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. The world's eyes are in Israel following an attack by Hamas. How closely are you following the story? How much do you know about it? That's our question in this week's Poll of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Poll of the Week to let us know. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Thanks so much uh, for this first hour. And enjoying the time with Dr. Carlos Iyer. I want to stress there's the differences between um, Catholics and non-Catholic Christians uh, are significant, 
we certainly do have more in common than we have apart. But there are the areas in which we disagree. Uh, we're making progress there, but the truth is there's no way of, you know, papering over very significant differences. I mean, the, back, well, what was it, around 2000 or so, when the uh, Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation produced a common document on the doctrine of justification by faith. And it got a lot of positive feedback on it, and people thought it's great. But a very significant number of Lutherans uh, here in the United States, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, didn't want to didn't want to jump in. Didn't think the document really reflected their understanding of justification by faith accurately. So they they withheld their signature. So there's a long way to go. But we have to at least proceed with giving it our best understanding. And that's why I like the work of Dr. Carlos Iyer. Gospel of Luke coming up in the next hour. I'm Al Cresta. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, thank you so much uh, to join me for another hour here. Today, of course, the Feast of St. Luke the Evangelist, and we will take some time in this hour to look over uh, this extraordinary gospel. Now, uh, Luke is also the author of the book of Acts, and they're like volume one and volume two. And uh, one thing that scholars will tell you um, is that Luke, first of all, is a work committed not only to doing, you might say, theology, but it's also a work of history. And he, Luke makes it very clear at the beginning of his gospel that he's uh, checking this checking all these things out with the eyewitnesses and those who are ministers of the Word, uh, he shows himself especially interested in research. And so the Gospel of Luke is commonly looked at as a, just an outstanding work of uh, history. It's also a great work of theology, though. Um, he not only did a careful investigation on the basis of the eyewitnesses and other reliable sources, but he integrated those sources into a common work of theology where Jesus is presented as Savior, as Messiah, as Lord, as Son of God. And Luke's Gospel (laughs) presents all these things and also makes it clear that these conclusions are divinely inspired. And he communicates to us what God wanted written for our salvation— Back Catechism, uh, paragraph 107, makes that clear. So enjoy the time we're going to be spending this hour with Father Pablo Gadanz. He's the author of the Gospel of Luke volume in the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scriptures. But first, let's get the headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, October 18th. It's the Feast of St. Luke, the Evangelist. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University, your vocation location 
is at AveMaria.edu. The next stage of the Vatican Synod on Synodality opened Wednesday with a call to focus on authority, decentralization, the co-responsibility of the laity, and the concrete changes to the institutional church. Cardinal Jean-Claude Hollerich, Realtor General for the Synod, said lay people are wondering what will change for them after the Synod is over. This afternoon, delegates began discussing the last part of the Instrumentum Laboris, which examines the meaning of authority in the Church. This session of the Synod continues until October 29th. President Biden says he agrees with Israel that a Gaza hospital was destroyed by a rocket fired by Hamas. Biden met with Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and held the briefing during his visit to Israel on Wednesday. The president is already on his way back to the U.S. A group of progressive House Democrats says it continues to support Israel, but also wants the Biden administration to push for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Washington Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal and others signed a statement that they want a ceasefire to allow for the return of hostages and delivery of humanitarian aid. The group also said in the statement it wants to minimize civilian casualties on both sides. And a new pepper has broken the Guinness World Records for world's hottest. Pepper X, created by South Carolinian Ed Curie, registers at just under 2.7 million Scoville units, the measurement scale for spicy heat. That's nearly three times hotter than the previous record holder, the Carolina Reaper. From the Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for joining me. This uh, this year marks the publication of a new commentary on the Gospel of Luke. It's part of the Catholic Commentary and Sacred Scripture series that we've discussed on this program many times before. This uh, commentary on the Gospel of Luke is written by uh, Father Pablo Gudenz. He is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Immaculate Conception Seminary uh, School of Theology at Seton Hall University. And Father, it's good to have you with me. Thanks. Thanks so much to be on the. Uh, I'm happy to be on the show with you, Al. The uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, in these series that we, in which we take a look at particular biblical books. One of the objectives is to help people understand that the Gospels or the prophets or whoever, whatever book we're looking at, uh, is is a literary whole. In other words, it's not just a string of uh, wise sayings connected together. But there's a basic narrative that lies behind this gospel, and I think for many Catholics, their their uh, familiarity with the sacred scripture takes place in the liturgy, in which we get these you know small short readings. Um, but the important thing, uh, what I've tried to bring out in these interviews, is that there's a there's an architecture to something like the Gospel of Luke. Is that am I right on this? That's correct, Al, and indeed. As Catholics, we hear the gospel proclaimed at Mass, but we only hear small portions, a particular passage. And so it's really important for us to read the narrative of the whole gospel. So the Gospel of Luke in particular is a, a rather long gospel, and there are parts of it which we never hear at Mass. And so 
Uh, also, for that reason, we should sit down and, and read through the whole narrative. And in particular, it, when we do so, uh, we're, we become more aware of the themes that yes. run through the whole gospel. So, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, there are many themes that, that keep occurring again and again. For example, showing that Jesus is at prayer, more so than in the other Gospels. And it's only when we, we read the Gospel all the way through can we then begin to appreciate uh, what each evangelist highlights in his portrait of Jesus, because all the evangelists are giving us a biography of Jesus, but it's selective. They're emphasizing certain aspects. So, for example, Luke emphasizes the title of Savior uh, when he's speaking about Jesus. So there are many things that we can discover, perhaps for the first time, when we sit down and read the Gospel all the way through, and the commentary then would also help to uh, aid in that process of discovery, of deepening our understanding of the Gospel. Very good. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some brief introductory matters. Uh, who's Luke, and why do we think this was written by Luke? <laughs> so, well, Luke is a companion, a missionary companion of St. Paul, and the earliest manuscripts of Luke's Gospel already have the name Luke uh, on them. So, for example, there's a papyrus uh, one of the earliest New Testament manuscripts, Papyrus 75, dated around the year 200, already indicates that this is the work of Luke. And this is the only name by which it was known uh, in the early church, this document, the Gospel of Luke. And so then we might say, well, who was this Luke? Well, there uh, we have an advantage because Luke is mentioned a number of times in Paul's letters. So uh, Paul mentions him uh, for example, in 2 Timothy, but also in Colossians 4.14. That's perhaps the, the most well-known passage where Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician. And so that's where we get the tradition that Luke was a doctor. And, and that's why St. Luke is also the patron then of doctors, and that's why we have uh, Catholic doctors have a St. Luke skilled, etc. Hmm. And so uh, Luke... Uh, also wrote the Acts of the Apostles, and in the Acts of the Apostles, there are certain sections that are written in the first-person plural, that you know, we traveled here and then we traveled there. And many scholars today, just as uh, early in the early church, believe that this is when Luke was actually accompanying Paul on these missionary journeys. And so he was uh, a first uh, he was an eyewitness to these events that he's recounting later in the Acts of the Apostles. Wow. Uh, and do we know um, who he wrote this for? So, who did he write this for? So, uh, more generally, we could say that uh, he's writing this for the churches evangelized by St. Paul. So, Paul, as, as we know, did a number of missionary journeys uh, throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, throughout Greece, and then ending up in Rome. And, and most of those churches were uh, Gentile churches, because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so we can uh, assume that after evangelizing them, telling them the basic message of Jesus, in order to catechize them further, he wanted to have some document. And so that's where the Gospel of Luke 
uh, comes in very handy, because indeed in the preface of the Gospel, the first four verses, he, he explains that this is so that you can know the certainty, uh, you can know the, the fuller story also uh, about the things that you've been catechized uh, about, and namely the story about Jesus. Now, uh, besides that broad view associated with Paul's ministry, Luke more specifically directs this to uh, one individual. Uh, so there's a Theophilus who was mentioned at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He's also mentioned at the beginning of Acts. Now, scholars have different opinions as to who this Theophilus might be. The most common opinion is that he was, uh, say, a benefactor, and that, uh, so, in a sense, it's like dedicated to him. Like today, an author might dedicate a work to someone, um, but he's not certainly the only reader of, right. of the Gospel. Uh, there are different opinions as to who Theophilus was. Uh, in any case, uh, the word Theophilus, the name Theophilus, also means uh, one who loves God or who is loved by God, and so spiritually, that's, that name has also been interpreted as that the gospel is directed toward anyone who, who loves God and so wants to know more about God. And so, in a sense, we could say that Luke's gospel is also written to all of us mm-hmm. who love God and are loved by God and, and want to know more about God's plan for our salvation. And when do you date it, roughly? So I prefer to date Luke uh, early, uh, and in this sense, I follow the more traditional uh, scholars that date Luke's gospel as well as other gospels on the earlier side, and that is in the decade of the 60s, of the first century. We know that Paul, as well as Peter, were martyred during that decade of the 60s on account of the persecution of the Christians in Rome under the Emperor Nero. And so uh, the the thinking along these lines is that in the Acts of the Apostles, we have Paul uh, end up in Rome, and he's under house arrest, but he hasn't been martyred yet. And so the idea is that Luke is writing Acts, and therefore... He would have written Luke, the Gospel of Luke before that, while Paul is still alive, mm-hmm. while Paul, during this time of Paul's imprisonment in Rome. And, and even there's a tradition that, that Paul was freed uh, from that first imprisonment and continued for a few more years of missionary activity before then being uh, imprisoned again, leading to his martyrdom. And so there are a number of scholars that would uh, suggest that Luke is writing while Paul is still alive. Uh, that... That's the, the the opinion that I that I mentioned in in the introduction to my commentary. I do also mention, however, that the the majority opinion dates Luke's gospel later mm-hmm. to uh, say the decade of the 70s uh, or 80s. Uh, there are some scholars that dated even uh, after that. Um, I think it's important in whatever date we, you end up coming up with. Important to understand that if, if you want to maintain that that Luke was a companion of Paul, then uh, he can't, you can't take the Gospel much later than uh, the 80s of the first century, right. because uh, Luke would have been too old by then. So, But I, I think the arguments for dating it early, while Paul is still alive, are, are persuasive, uh, that, Paul, uh, that Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles while Paul is in prison, in Rome, and that he would have written the Gospel of Luke uh, prior to that. 
Is it significant that that falls before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem? Uh, that's correct. So uh, uh, a major event in that first century was the fall of the temple and the city of Jerusalem uh, when the Romans came in and, and destroyed the temple. And, and that happened in the year 70 A.D. And, uh, of course, Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. And in Luke, the description of that destruction of the temple and of the city, uh, for example, in chapter 21, is a little bit more detailed than we might have, for example, in the Gospel of Mark. And so some scholars have, have said, oh, this is clear evidence that he wrote after the fact, because he's sort of like reporting on the destruction of Jerusalem in his gospel. But other scholars have said, no, that's really not the case. There is more detail in Luke compared to Mark, but the, the, the kind of detail, it's actually more similar to prophecies in the Old Testament. Right. And, and then we remember that in the Old Testament, the temple had been destroyed uh, once before that's right. the, by the Babylonians. And and so Jesus, when he's discussing, uh, predicting the fall of the temple, he's using prophetic language similar to that, for example, of Jeremiah uh, in the Old Testament. And so there's, other scholars have, have clearly said that there's no evidence in Luke that he's writing after the fact. And so that's also an important uh, point to establish uh, when, uh, when maintaining an early date, as I do, for, for the Gospel of Luke. Now, is Luke? Um, Luke begins in the in the prologue here. He seems very concerned about getting this right. I mean, <laughs> he he wants an orderly narrative. He wants to make sure it's it's in some way confirmed by those who are eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Talk to me about his concern for history. Yes. So Luke is the only uh, evangelist who gives us such a a clear statement of his purpose right at the beginning of the Gospel. Uh, the Gospel of John has a, kind of a statement of purpose uh, toward the end, but Luke has one right here at the beginning. And really, this is a signal to his readers regarding the kind of literature that Luke is writing. Now, here uh, we have the benefit of, the, of a lot of scholarship on the Gospels in the last, say, 25 years that have... A, scholars have affirmed that the Gospels are a kind of biography. They're ancient biographies. So not like a modern biography that like over a thousand pages tells you everything about a person, but they're similar to ancient biographies. So like biographies that were written about generals or philosophers in the ancient world. And of course, biographies are a kind of historical work. Right. And then we also have ancient history works. And we see in uh, the, the Gospel of Luke, in this preface, how uh, Luke makes it clear that he is writing a historical work, namely a biography of Jesus. And that's why he paid attention to eyewitnesses, because those are the ones who can tell you what Jesus right. Father, hold it there. We'll come back on the other side of the break. My guest, Father Pablo Gadenz. It's the Gospel of Luke, Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We get what we look for. St. Therese of Lisieux has an interesting insight on this. Once in a discussion over the possibility of avoiding purgatory, the future saint told another member of her community, Sister Maria Fabronia, that God was more father than judge, 
And in this discussion, debate, she finally took the liberty of saying to the other sister, if you look for the justice of God, you will get it. The soul will receive from God exactly what she desires. Are we full of wounds and anger and hurt, and do we want to inflict that on other people? Are we allowing God to heal us? If we receive his mercy, we have to show it to others. The Beatitudes are the heart of Jesus' message. Let's be transformed by them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. What is truth? Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, not realizing that he was looking at truth. Jesus Christ is the truth and the source of all truth. The Catholic Catechism states that man tends by nature toward the truth and that he is obliged to honor and bear witness to it. Thomas Aquinas asserts men could not live together if there were not mutual confidence that they were being truthful with one another. Truth entails both honesty and discretion between what ought to be expressed and what ought to be kept secret. Jesus told Pilate that he had come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Thus, the Catechism states, in situations that require witness to the truth of Jesus, a Christian must profess it without equivocation, even at the sacrifice of his own life. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I went to Las Vegas years and years ago for one of these cable shows, and, and I was uh, shocked to see all these old ladies in their 70s and 80s getting off that plane, running for a slot machine. You don't have a chance to win. They're all fixed. I know, my uncle used to have slot machines. <laughs> EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Pablo Gadens. He is uh, Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Immaculate Conception Seminary School of Theology at Seton Hall University and the author of a recently published 
commentary, which I heartily recommend to you, the Gospel of Luke. It's part of the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture series that we've discussed on this program many times before. It's uh, edited. Uh, the general editors are Peter Williamson, Dr. Peter Williamson, and Dr. Mary Healy, uh, friends of ours at uh, Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit, Michigan. So it would be a good idea to spend some time Getting an overview of the gospel. Where do I start, for instance, reading the Gospel of Luke? Is the question we uh, often raise when we take these uh, when we take these overviews of a biblical book. Where do I start with, in this case, the Gospel of Luke? And Father uh, uh, Pablo was going over uh, some of the dating of it, who Luke is, the intended audience. Um, we've touched on some of the themes, but we were talking about the historicity of the uh, gospel. Uh, in Luke's concern at the very beginning to set out an orderly account which is grounded in the testimony of eyewitnesses and those who are ministers of the Word. Uh, is this concern for history, does that actually run through the early church? You know, they're not only, I mean, there's some spiritual traditions that are unconcerned about history. Um, they're concerned about spiritual encounters. But it seems to me biblical spirituality has an emphasis on God's actions in space and in time. And so there's a historical emphasis. Does that run through uh, the, the biblical writers generally? Yes, that's something that really characterizes our Judeo-Christian heritage, um, and perhaps in a way that that we that's not the case for some other uh, religious traditions. But certainly in the, the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition, there's a great concern for history because of the belief that God actually enters into human history. And so uh, there are events of sal- uh, in God's plan of salvation. In the Old Testament, of course, key events such as the Exodus. Uh, but certainly for the Gospels, uh, we have the life of Jesus. And... Uh, it's becoming more evident to scholars of the last generation that the early Christians paid a lot of attention to historical details about Jesus. So, for example, one of the earliest uh, Christian writers from the second century, a bishop named Papias, whose works we don't have directly, but Eusebius, the church historian, tells us about these works uh, in his uh, fourth century uh, ecclesiastical history. He tells us how Papias when he was a young man, would be eager to uh, meet any uh, disciple who had known, like, the apostles. Mm-hmm. And he would ask them, what did uh, Peter say, and what did John say, and all the because there were traditions about Jesus that came right from these apostles. So these were the eyewitnesses. These were the ones who had been preaching the gospel, the ministers of the word. But they would be handing on what Jesus actually said and did. And so uh, this is kind of a a revolution in gospel studies compared with maybe the situation going back 100 years ago. We think of the German scholar like Bultmann. Mm -hmm. They thought maybe the early Christians were just creating stories about Jesus in order to get you to believe in him. But rather, the, the Christians were very concerned about passing on the historical traditions of what Jesus did. And so the eyewitnesses were a control on the tradition. Uh, they would say, no, yes, this is what actually happened. And that's why it's important that Luke mentions the eyewitnesses, because he's saying those are the authorities that stand behind what I'm about to set out here. 
And that's why we find the Gospels being written uh, toward that latter part of the first century, precisely when those eyewitnesses are starting to pass away. And so the, their witness is being put, set into writing uh, for the future generations. And so there's a great concern uh, for history among the early church. And so that's why we can have great confidence. And when we read the Gospels, we are reading uh, what Jesus actually said and did. And in fact, the Second Vatican Council explained that about the Gospels. It affirmed without hesitation the historicity of the Gospels. Yeah, you know, I, I love the way the Gospel of Luke begins with those four verses at the beginning, setting it up as uh, his concern for history, and then he jumps right into it. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the priestly division of Abijah in the white... You know, he jumps right, he immediately, he tells us, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with the historical issues here, and then he sets it right up. Uh, I just love the way he does that. Let's talk about those infancy narratives uh, at the beginnings. A lot of people find it hard to believe that um, uh, that Luke would be able to access the kind of witness that could give him accurate information about uh, the prophecies surrounding Jesus and, well, what we call the virginal conception of Jesus. Tell us a little bit about the infancy sure. narratives and your confidence in them. Yes, yes. So the infancy narratives, of course, are among the most beautiful and most beloved passages in Scripture, and also perhaps some of the, the most well-known. Uh, Luke's infancy narrative, of course, is what we meditate on during uh, the Christmas season, and of course, uh, each of the joyful mysteries of the Rosary are also rooted in events uh, recounted by Luke in his infancy narrative, and so they're very familiar passages. And Luke tells us he gives us clues along the way as to who his sources are. So, for example, uh, Mary, a few times uh, in the infancy narrative, Luke tells us that she pondered all of these things in her heart. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, when after the uh, shepherds come and see the infant Jesus in chapter 2, verse 19. Mary kept all these things, reflecting on them in her heart. And Luke repeats that later on as well. So those are clues that Mary ultimately is the source yeah. for Luke's infancy narrative. And another clue about that is that Mary is mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles, as being with the Apostles in the upper room uh, right before Pentecost. And so that's a link that, you see, Mary is not only present at the beginning of the mystery of Jesus on earth, but also at the, mystery, at the beginning of the mystery of the Church on earth. And so either directly or through other family members, uh, Mary's uh, story would have been passed on to the early Christians, and then and Luke would have received it that way. And so uh, there are, a, despite all the skeptics, there are a number of contemporary scholars, Catholic and non-Catholic as well, who would affirm, as I do, that, that Mary stands as the source behind the infancy narrative. So we've got this prologue where he talks about his concern for history, he goes over his method a little bit, he jumps right into it with the uh, announcement of the birth of Jesus, and he roots it again in history, and uh, after the birth of Jesus, we quickly get to Jesus' preparation for public ministry. And so, again, there's a, a clear narrative flow here. And um, 
why was he concerned to show preparation for Jesus' public ministry? I think that's, I mean, we've already got this idea um, that, you know, he is the promised one, he's the uh, anointed one, and yet Luke wants to show that even Jesus himself was prepared for public ministry. Yes, and so uh, it's actually very beautiful uh, because in the infancy narrative, we're introduced to the story of the birth of Jesus, but we're also told about the birth of John the Baptist. Only Luke's gospel tells us about the circumstances surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. And so right away, there's a parallelism that is set up in Luke's gospel between John the Baptist and Jesus. But of course, it's not like these are two people on the same uh, level. Uh, it's clear from the infancy narrative that John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. Mm-hmm. John is called the prophet of the Lord, but Jesus is called, uh, I'm sorry, the prophet of the Most High. Jesus is called the Son of the Most High. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. So Jesus is greater than John. So then you fast forward uh, about 30 years uh, in chapter 3, and that's when John's ministry is underway by the Jordan River, and so you see that then uh, John is indeed carrying out the commission given to him already uh, by the angel to his father. He's preparing the way for Jesus, and so you you learn about John's baptism in John, John in Luke chapter three, and then you see Jesus's baptism as well, and and from that then he begins his his public ministry. And so Luke, by having the infancy narrative with John the Baptist, and then the story of John the Baptist and the preparation for Jesus's ministry, uh, makes a, a a good connection there that we don't uh, have as as clearly in the other gospels. And um, and we we also have uh, it moves there to a section of the temptation of Jesus, where which which the other gospels do refer to, but this is this again strikes I think a lot of us as it's like wow why did he have to go through these temptations before his uh, he might say his coming out uh, event <laughs> um, right. at his baptism why was it necessary for him to pass through this period of temptation. Yes, and so all of these things, both the the scene of the baptism and also the temptation, uh, help to identify Jesus with all of us. So indeed, at Jesus' baptism, uh, uh, Luke is very uh, clear that Jesus is being baptized along with many other people. The verse, chapter 321, says, After all the people had been baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. And so the idea here is that Jesus... uh, has solidarity with human beings mm-hmm. as he's undergoing that same experience as them. And so the, the, the same point holds for the temptation narrative, that Jesus experienced temptation, and that's something that we all experience as well. And so Jesus is in solidarity with us, even in temptation. Now, of course, Jesus did not give in to the temptation. Jesus right. is without sin. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a, a message there that because Jesus uh, endured temptation that uh, and overcame it, then when we're faced with temptation, we can overcome it uh, as well. Uh, but also, the, the individual temptations are suited for the person of Jesus, and they, uh, they're, in a sense, at least some of the temptations uh, are related to things that Jesus will later reveal. And so, for example, the, one of the temptations the devil asked Jesus to worship him, 
But at the end of the story, at the end of the gospel, we see the disciples are worshiping Jesus. Cause, and that's an affirmation of Jesus' divinity, because yep. only, only uh, the Lord God shall you worship. Right. And, and indeed, uh, the disciples are worshiping Jesus, and that's a way to affirm that, that Jesus is indeed the Lord, that he is divine. My guest is uh, Father Pablo Gadenz. He is the author of an outstanding commentary on the Gospel of Luke, published just this year. It's part of the Catholic Commentary and Sacred Scripture series that we've discussed before. Today being the feast day of St. Luke the Evangelist, I thought it would be a good idea for us to, again, get a taste of the Gospel uh, through uh, Father Pablo's work. We're going to continue. We've got another segment coming up, and we'll get into some of the... Uh, well, there's a dramatic... There's a real drama here in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll start it out as Jesus announces uh, his public ministry, but there's more coming. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Do you have an unrelated twin, a doppelganger walking around somewhere? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. Scripture points to many who may have been actual twins. Doubting Thomas, one of the Twelve Apostles, may have been a twin. His surname is Didymus, which means double or twofold. Is it possible for each of us to have a twin of sorts, an unrelated person who so closely resembles us that they pass for a twin? Research cited by Dr. Peter Atia indicates that 99.9% of the human genome is identical across all humans. So it is possible that at least one of the billions on Earth could have a slight bit more 
more genetic material that makes them look like me or you. But it isn't just looks. Even certain behaviors studied tend to be more similar in lookalikes. The next time someone says you look like George Clooney, research says it's possible. For more on this, look for the Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. The world's eyes are in Israel following an attack by Hamas. How closely are you following the story? How much do you know about it? That's our question in this week's Poll of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Poll of the Week to let us know. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Father Pablo Gadenz. He is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Immaculate Conception Seminary School of Theology at Seton Hall and the author of a, a new commentary on the Gospel of Luke, published just this year in the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scriptures series, published by Baker Academic. And we are looking at the Gospel of Luke. We're just beginning. We're trying to just get uh, our feet wet in the Gospel and hopefully encourage you to read through the Gospel. It's always a wonderful exercise to read through a Gospel in one setting, one sitting, because you get a little bit more the sen- the storyline. We are now, we've gone through the temptation of Jesus, and he then, the devil leaves him, it reads this way, um, when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him, that is from Jesus, for a time. And then Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news of him spread through the whole region. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by all. So Jesus is getting a good beginning here. I mean, people like him. Um, he's obviously uh, sh- showing spiritual authority. How does he take us to the rejection at Nazareth? And uh, this is uh, the beginning of conflict for him with his own people. Yes. So Luke's Gospel, unlike Matthew and Mark, uh, Luke's Gospel highlights the encounter of Jesus uh, in the synagogue in Nazareth. So Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus preached in the synagogue in Nazareth and that he did not receive a, a good reception there, but only Luke tells us what Jesus actually said and what yeah. he was doing. And it's a, a very dramatic passage because he stands up and reads from the prophet Isaiah, a passage from Isaiah 61, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives etc. And then Jesus says, today the scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. And at the beginning, people are excited about what he's saying, but at the, at the end of uh, his uh, preaching, they turn against him, and they try to drive him out of town and try to hurl him down off the cliff. Uh, and, but then he passes uh, through their midst and goes away. So, uh, in a sense, here we have the the whole gospel story in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. We have the identification of who Jesus is, uh, what his mission is, but also what his destiny will be in terms of uh, his being put to death. So, in terms of his identity, that passage from 
Isaiah that Jesus reads said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. So Jesus is the anointed one. Well, that's what the word Messiah means. Jesus is the Christ. Christ is also another word meaning Messiah, anointed one. And so he's identified as the Messiah, as the one for whom they were waiting for so long. His mission is also clarified in this passage because the mission of the Messiah, as indicated in the passage that Jesus reads from Isaiah, is to proclaim liberty to captives. Well, that's a loaded phrase uh, in Luke's Gospel. It's a loaded phrase in Isaiah that Jesus is reading, because that points back to this other passage in Leviticus, which is where the Jubilee year was announced. Mm-hmm. Every 50 yep. years, the, the Jewish people had the Jubilee year where they would proclaim liberty. So if you were in slavery because of your debts, every 50 years you would be freed. So Jesus is now coming to proclaim liberty of a new kind with this new Jubilee. And indeed, the tradition of Jubilee years in the Church goes back to what Jesus does here in Nazareth. Except, Jesus is proclaiming a new kind of liberty. And interestingly, the Greek word for liberty, aphesis, is also the same word for forgiveness. And so, Jesus' mission is being announced here, and then later we'll see it acted out when he's forgiving people's sins. Mm. And then finally, Jesus' destiny is also announced here because his rejection... Uh, foreshadows his future uh, suffering and death. Why was this quickly quick reversal of fortune here? He, he's well-received, and then in a fairly short encounter, at least it reads that way in the text, they turn on him. What did he do wrong? <laughs> right, right. It seemed like things were going so well. <laughs> right. So in, the, in the verses... Uh, where he continues uh, explaining to them, he makes reference to two prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. Except the the events in the lives of Elijah and Elisha that Jesus points out are events in which uh, those prophets interacted with Gentiles, uh, with non-Jews. And so, for example, he mentions how Elijah went to a widow in Zarephath in the land of Sidon, outside the land of Israel, and how Elisha had healed... um, uh, a leper, but he was a Syrian, not an Israelite. And this is also foreshadowing the mission of the church to go not only to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. This is what Luke is going to write about in the Acts of the Apostles, where he begins in, in Jerusalem with the early apostles in Jerusalem, but then it ends in Rome, and we have the story of the mission to the Gentiles. And so we, we have everything being foreshadowed here about Jesus' mission. And so it's because Jesus referred to the, the Gentiles as being the ones blessed by God, that the people uh, became indignant and they turned against him uh, because he seemed to be saying that the blessing wasn't only theirs, but it was going to be extended to these other people. Uh, and so that's why they turned against him. Uh, this might get overly technical, but I'm just curious. Even, I mean, in the Old Testament, there is a sense of universal mission that, you know, all the nations of the earth would be blessed because of the um, because of what uh, God had done among the Hebrews, and I'm I'm wondering, were they in the first century? Were Palestinian religious authorities no longer concerned about any universal mission for Israel? I think this is uh, something that that. Uh varied among the different Jewish groups. And so uh, 
when we think of the expectations of the Jewish people at the time, like their expectation for the Messiah, certainly they were expecting also then the Messiah to restore the Davidic kingdom mm-hmm. uh, and therefore to overthrow these Gentile oppressors. Remember, they had been oppressed not only by the Romans at the time of Jesus, but by the Greeks before them and right. by the Persians before them and by the Babylonians, etc. So you had these four like Gentile uh, kingdoms. And so that experience of of being oppressed by foreign powers perhaps had something to 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 do with with their attitude toward uh, non-Israelites, uh, but there's also but you do see a, a variety of opinions among Jews of the time, and so for example in the writings of Qumran, you you do have a sense of that there's going to uh, be a conflict against these Gentile uh, rulers, and it's only by overthrowing them. Uh, whereas in other J- Jewish writings, you have a sense more of how the, the Gentiles will will be converted, and, and in that way to fulfill that promise uh, to Abraham that the, that the blessing will come upon you know all the children, all the nations, uh, all the nations will be blessed uh, through him. And so there's I think some tension uh, among different Jewish groups during that first century, mm-hmm. uh, in part as a result of their own experience of of Gentile oppression. Sure, sure. Uh, we've got about five minutes left, and uh, again, we've just started the narrative, but I wanted to show there's tremendous drama here, which continues throughout the entire Gospel, and really into the Book of Acts as well. But let's touch on some of the themes. You've already mentioned um, that this uh, theme of Jubilee, which is tied to the theme of forgiveness and mercy. Mercy, uh, given again Pope Francis's emphasis, is probably good for us to bring up here. Um, would you say mercy is, in fact, a a self-conscious theme for Luke. Uh, yes, I would say that, and uh, as a result, others have said that the Gospel of Luke is the Gospel of mercy. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. So in in Luke, in chapter 6, we have the Sermon on the Plain, the so-called Sermon on the Plain. This is where we hear some of the teaching that's similar to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but in that Sermon on the Plain, uh, Jesus uh, says uh, about mercy, he says, be merciful as your Father is merciful. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And we might be reminded of a phrase in Matthew's Gospel which says, be perfect, right, just as right. your Heavenly Father is perfect. And both of those verses are going back to the Old Testament, to Leviticus 19, which said, uh, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So uh, the, the, the question that that Old Testament phrase uh, raises is, what does it mean to be holy like God is holy? So in a sense, when Jesus says, be merciful as your Father is merciful, he's interpreting what holiness is in terms that that uh, holiness means that you will also be merciful. And indeed, that is the portrait that we get, for example, in that passage in Exodus where the God where God announced uh, to Moses that, that the Lord, the Lord, you know, merciful and gracious, you know, the mercy extends for many generations. Uh, and so, there's this uh, idea that holiness is closely associated with mercy here in Luke's Gospel. Jesus not only teaches that here in the Sermon on the Plain, but then he'll also demonstrate that uh, later by having mercy uh, on sinners, uh, restoring them to uh, to God's grace through forgiveness, and he'll also illustrate mercy through his parables. And so we think, for example, of some of the famous parables in Luke, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is about mercy, uh, you know, the one who treated him with mercy, and Jesus says, go and do likewise. Uh, so that's what it means to be merciful, to imitate the Good Samaritan. 
And then, uh, how does it, what does it mean to be merciful as God is merciful? Well, we, that's illustrated for us in Luke by the parable of the prodigal son. The father in the, in the parable is merciful to the son when he finally returns uh, and asks for forgiveness. And that's how, how God is merciful uh, with us when we turn from our sin and ask for forgiveness. Um, this, this idea of Jesus being filled with compassion... Uh, or in the case of the father, for instance, in the parable of the prodigal son, um, being yes. filled with compassion. I mean, this is a major emphasis, isn't it, in Jesus' revelation of who the father is? That's right. Yeah, there's a, a, like a special word there that only occurs three times in the gospel that means to be moved with compassion. So the father in the parable representing God is moved with compassion on sinners, and uh, the Good Samaritan in the parable is moved with compassion. And then the, the, God, the verb is used one, a third time, namely it, when Jesus raises from the dead the son of the widow at Nain. And he's also moved with compassion. And so this is a, a, uh, an important aspect of the portrait of Jesus and also then the, the portrait of God through the parable uh, that's given to us through the Gospel of Luke. And then with the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're instructed to go and do likewise. That we too, when we see a situation of need, should be moved with compassion and try to help as the Good Samaritan did. You know, as a scholar, or really as a careful reader, any careful reader would want to take note of those um, recurring phrases like that uh, and note where they show up, because that itself is a tip that the author is trying to make a point, isn't it? Yes, and that's precisely the kind of connection you can make when you sit down and read the whole gospel, uh, because you see the connections with these recurring phrases, uh, you know, throughout the gospel. Um, Another example would be uh, when Luke repeatedly tells us that Jesus was praying, like at the baptism, he was praying. Uh, Before choosing the apostles, he prayed all night. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he was praying. So what's the message that's that you get from that, well, that we should be praying as well. Yes. So Jesus teaches us about prayer, not only by teaching us prayer, like the Lord's Prayer, which he does in Luke 11, but he also teaches us by his example. And that's something that you can pick up by reading through the whole gospel and seeing these recurring phrases, whether it's regarding mercy, compassion, or, or prayer, this other example. Uh, so it's a very beautiful gospel that we ought to spend time reading. Father, thank you so much for being with me today and for your work and your labor here on the Gospel Luke, the commentary. It's wonderful and uh, great you. making your acquaintance. We'll talk again, Lord willing. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Father Pablo Gadens, it's the Gospel of Luke, Catholic commentary on sacred scripture. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Father Benedict Groeschel. I want to welcome you if you're not familiar with the wonderful world of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What will America become if it makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit to work here because of untruth and self-indulgence 
and paganism. This is not just a nice discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, because I'm going to discuss what happens when people make it impossible to be prudent, just, or honest, or brave, or courageous, or reverent. When people make that impossible, what a terrible thing they do not only to themselves, but to our society. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Well, thanks so much. Good being with you again. And let me say that uh, you can follow up on the conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net. You will find uh, in our online bookstore Father uh, Gendanza's book, The Gospel of Luke. Uh, we also have there uh, Dr. Carlos Heyer's book, uh, Reformations, The Early Modern World. So head on over there. We'll also have follow-up information on the interviews in the Crested Guest Archives, which you can get to easily by going to AveMariaRadio.net. And then look in the upper right-hand corner of the page there, see my face, tap it, and you'll end up in the Crested Guest Archives where you can you know, follow up on today's interviews, but also you can search for previous interviews there as well. And I hope you'll take advantage of it. Well, thanks so much for being with me today. Stay tuned now as Catholic Answers Lives come on, answering your questions so that you'll be better equipped to give an answer for the hope that is within you. I'm Al Cresta. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.